John chapter 5, church family. Part of our ongoing study series in the Gospel of John. If you'll grab your Bible and join me there in John chapter 5. If you need a Bible today, just let Ron know. Raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. There's a note page in your bulletin if you would retrieve that. And um, already had one cell phone go off a little bit earlier. So, But that person was quick to respond like Johnny on the spot. So... What if we can just get ahead of that and not even have it on for this moment? I would appreciate that. We would all appreciate that. John chapter 5. I think the Lord has some really special things for us waiting here today. There was a story that ran in a Florida newspaper a while back about some dolphins who were kept at a marine theme park in Key Largo. They had a wonderful dolphin show there that was quite popular. Well, one day, one of the dolphin keepers did the unthinkable, inadvertently opening the wrong dolphin tank door, the one that led directly out to the ocean. And the dolphins, being dolphins, swam right through that door and out into the sea. (laughs) Somebody cheers, yay. Every animal escaped. I mean, the entire dolphin show was gone. The animals were all out in the deep blue somewhere. There was a mad scramble to try to figure out, well, how in the world do we get these dolphins back? They weren't wearing trackers. They were show performers. And so they bring in the marine experts, and they're coming up with some ideas about how to get the dolphins back. And turns out that a few days later, these dolphins show up about 55 miles away at Key Biscayne. And they're all in a small little lagoon, and they were spotted promptly at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 4 p.m. And they were all doing their dolphin show thing, their spins and their tumbles in the air, and they're they're walking on their tail in the water, 10, 2, and 4 o'clock, and They had no idea, these dolphins had no idea that they were free. They were doing what they had always been trained to do. And so it was a matter of just going up and getting them, bringing them back into their captivity, never really knowing that they were free to do something else. I pass this story on to us because it reminds us, it reminds me that there are people like those dolphins. There are a lot of people like those dolphins can get kind of stuck in a place of doing what you've always done, what you were taught from way, way back and, and unable to see or to think differently, to, to imagine that there could be new possibilities, stuck in the old ways of thinking. Even in the church, people can get stuck, don't you think? can get stuck in church, doing church, not really open to maybe the truth even of who Jesus is, not ready to take in the truth of him and how he could change your eternity, just doing church because that's what you're supposed to do. You're in church every Sunday, but never really knowing Jesus, just doing it the old way. Now, we know that this can happen, church family. We know it can happen because we met up with some 
of those very same kinds of people in our study of John chapter 5. Jesus heals a man, if you recall, in the opening part of John 5, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's lying by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. You'll remember this, first part of the chapter, and Jesus performs this amazing miracle on a particular day. Do you remember what day it was? It was the Sabbath day. That's right. You've been dialing in. You've been taking this in. Well, when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day, that attracts the attention of Israel's religious leadership. They see this healed man, and he's carrying his bedroll under his arm, and he's walking with this uncontainable energy on the Sabbath. And they come to him, and they come down hard on this guy because he is working on the Sabbath, if you remember. These strict religious rule keepers did not work on the Sabbath, and and you didn't carry your bedroll on the Sabbath because that was work, and that needed to stop, and it needed to stop right now. Well, this was never God's intent for how the Sabbath should be viewed, but the religious leaders are stuck in their religion, stuck in their rules, They eventually learned that it is Jesus who healed this man and told him to get up, carry his bedroll, and walk. And so they immediately shift their attention away from the healed man and on to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he try to quell this confrontation that is coming? Does he try to make peace with these guys who are are irate because he has broken the rules and told someone else to Break the rules? Does does Jesus back off? No way. Verse 17, chapter 5, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God, making himself equal with God. The religious leaders saw Jesus as a monstrous blasphemer of the one true God. You, a mere man, equal with God, how dare you? For this you must die. That's their feelings in this moment. Well, as you might remember from last time, Jesus doesn't back down to these guys. If anything, he raises the religious leader's angry meter by a factor of six. You remember this? It's right there on your note page. In verses 17 to 30, Jesus essentially says, you know, since we're on the subject of, of what I'm saying and who I am and all of that, Here's a few more things that you should know about me. And in one of the, the, what I would call the true gems of the Gospel of John, one that oftentimes gets, I think just gets run right past, Jesus lays out six glorious truths about who he is, his true identity and his, his mission. And church family, the real reason that John includes the healing miracle of the paralyzed man at Bethesda as one of seven miracles that he includes in his gospel, the reason he includes it is not because of the miracle itself, as amazing as it was. 
The reason he, he includes is, is because of what happens after the miracle. The miracle becomes really the catalyst for Jesus to unveil more of his awesome identity so that people like us can come to the right conclusion about him, believe in him, gain life forever with him as he pays our sin debt and rises from the dead. And so Jesus confronts the religious leaders head on and he says in 17 to 30, six things about himself. He says, I am equal with God. You were right. You got it right. I am equal with God. I'm also, he says, the giver of life. All life comes from me. He says, I am the final judge of all, all people. I save all who will believe in me. Every single one who will put their faith in me. Jesus says, I'll save them. I saved them from eternity separated from God. And he says, I will raise all of the dead. I won't just raise those who believe in me. I'm going to raise all from the dead. Some to a life in eternity with God. Others to a horrific judgment. I'm raising everybody. And then he says, I am always doing God's will. Verse 30 which is yet another way for Jesus to say, I am perfect God. I only do what God does. Six tremendous, stupendous, incredible, bold claims. Now, for anyone hearing these claims, be it the religious leaders here in the first century or you and I in the 21st century, there really are only two conclusions that can be reached when you hear these claims. Either these... Six claims, these are are the most preposterous lies or these are the most powerful truths anyone could ever get their head and their heart around. It's either one or the other. How do we know these six claims are true? What evidence is there to back them up? Would they hold up in a court of law if they were put to the test? More importantly, I guess I should ask this question. Would you stake your eternity on these six, questions, these six claims? Would you do that? Now, the religious leaders that, that Jesus is standing toe-to-toe with here in this moment are experts in the Old Testament. They know the scriptures. They, they, they know that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, again in chapter 19, verse 15, witnesses are to be brought forward to establish the truthfulness of every matter. You need to have witnesses. And Jesus, of course, knows that this is true as well. And so he says in verse 31, if you look in your text, this is new ground for us now. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If I'm the only one saying these things, well, then my testimony really doesn't stand up. And so he gets out in front of these guys, and in effect, Jesus says, these claims that I've made, man, they're big claims. I know that they are really big claims. So let me produce some witnesses who can give support and lend confirmation and veracity to what I am claiming. And what Jesus does now 
as you can see there on your note page, is call forward five witnesses to back up these incredible claims. And the first witness that Jesus calls upon is who? John. John the Baptist. Not John the writer of the gospel, but John the Baptist. In verse 32, Jesus says, I'm not just tooting my own horn here. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness, borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now that, I want to stop right there because even here, church family, we see the saving heart of Jesus. These religious leaders are out to kill Jesus. That's their agenda. But even here, he is longing for them to have a change of heart and come to a saving relationship with him. That's his heart. This is Jesus' heart for every person in this room. No matter where your life has been, what you have done, no matter what you are currently doing, Jesus wants to save sinners. This this is his heart. Then he adds about John in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, with these words about John the Baptist, Jesus sort of takes us back to chapter one. If you were here for that part of our study of the book, this is where we were first introduced to John in John chapter one. He was out in the wilderness of Judea calling people to repent at the Jordan River, calling them to 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 make their hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah, whom John said was about to burst on the scene. John was the first prophet to appear in Israel in over 400 years. People were listening. They They were taking John's message in, and they were taking him seriously. His message was never about himself. You remember that? Never about himself. It was always about the Messiah who was coming. He must increase. I must what? Decrease. And we've embraced that, that statement to carry us in through the year 2020. Well, if you remember, people were coming out to hear John in such huge numbers that the religious leaders in Jerusalem just couldn't ignore this situation. They sent a delegation out to question John. And his response was always the same. I am a voice in the wilderness. Make straight the path for the Lord. He's here. He's standing in your midst. Repent of your sin. Cleanse your hearts. The Messiah is here. That was John's message. Now, these religious leaders didn't like John because he was calling them, the religious elite, to repent to get ready for the Messiah. And that offended them. Just like the message of repentance for sin offends many in our day. We have a hard time acknowledging we have a sin problem. (laughs) That's basic to our fallen nature, that our lives are out of step with the will of of a holy God. We, We have a hard time accepting that. 
We don't want to have to admit we're not good enough in ourselves to to merit heaven. We all need to repent, don't we? We all do, brothers and sisters. We all do. You have a pastor who needs to repent. We all have stuff in our lives every day that we need to repent of, even when we know Jesus, right? Lying, coveting, gossip, lust, selfishness, pride, You have those things in your life. I have those things in my life. We all need the blood of Jesus every day to cover the sin that so easily entangles us, right? As Hebrews 12 says, Jesus calls John a burning and shining lamp. It's a spiritually dark time, and John is shining as a bold witness in that darkness with a message of light. Jesus is light. He's come into the world. And then the day comes when John cries out. Do you remember this? John 1, 29, he he points and he says, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's right there. That's John bearing witness, isn't he? He's pointing at Jesus. One One of Jesus' most beautiful titles, is it not? The Lamb of God. You know, he's called King of Kings and and Lord of Lords and and the Good Shepherd and the the Bread of Life and, and on and on and on the titles of Jesus go. But those are great titles. But man, this one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, that title speaks of Jesus' redemptive mission. His humility. He went submissively to the cross as the Father willed. In fact, this is the title, church family, that heaven sings out about Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, all of heaven sings out this title. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb, right? Jesus says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. I'm the truth. And then Jesus says, in effect, I call the second witness to stand on my behalf. And what's the second witness? It's his miracles. Jesus calls upon his miracles to bear witness of who he is. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Just check out my works, Jesus says. So here Jesus rolls out as an exhibit in his defense the miracles that he has already performed. And they are clearly things that a mere human being could never do by this time jesus has perhaps done hundreds of miracles healing the lame the blind the deaf the dumb the leprous the dying the crippled casting out demons jesus has done it all and he's done it multiple times he already has a reputation as a worker of great miracles and in fact it's why the crowds 
are just so huge that are following Jesus. They want to see the miracles. We know this is true because next week when we get into chapter 6, in verse 2, we're told that the people turn out to see Jesus because of the powerful miracles that he is working. They're bearing witness of him. This guy is special. He's different. He might be God. He might be Messiah. Now, John has only chosen, as I mentioned, to highlight seven miracles in his gospel. Three miracles already we have, we, have, we have considered together. First, there was that miracle that Jesus performed, the power to transform as he turns water into wine in Cana. Remember that? Chapter 2. Jesus transforms. He can do that with inanimate objects. He can turn water into wine. But more importantly, that miracle was telling us that Jesus transforms souls. He transforms souls, brings them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Does that not remind us of 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus is a transformer, isn't he? He's, he does that. And that miracle of turning the water into wine, well, it, it, it witnessed to that power. Jesus then heals a, a government official's dying son. You remember in chapter 4? Yeah? He does that from 16 miles away. The, the, the dying boy is, is 16 miles away in another town. Jesus heals him. He does it without even speaking a word telling us the distance is nothing to the God-man. 16 miles, 16 million miles, it wouldn't matter. Jesus has the power. He's God. Jesus makes a paralyzed man walk here in chapter 5. He'd been bound to that straw mat for 38 years. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. That's a powerful witness. The religious leaders all saw that. They saw the evidence of that miracle for sure. Next time, we're going to step into the feeding of 5,000 people, actually more like 15,000 from just a little picnic basket, right? And Jesus is going to walk on water in chapter 6. He's going to restore sight to a blind man in chapter 9. And before John is done with us, Jesus will raise people from the dead, raising the four days dead Lazarus. Do you remember that? John chapter 11, the premier example of of Jesus' miracle-working power. John chapter 11. And, And that will be the miracle, church family, that seals the deal for these religious leaders. It's just too much. They have to kill Jesus, and they have to kill Lazarus too we will learn, because they're both witnessing so powerfully to who they are. Jesus is just too big a threat to, a, to this re- established religious order. we got to do away with him. stuck. The way these religious leaders, we know this, try to rationalize away the, the miracle witness of, the, of Jesus. How do they try to rationalize that out of their minds is to claim that Jesus does all of these miracles by the power of whom? Of Satan, right? Mark chapter 3. 
What a reminder to us that if somebody is bent on not believing in Jesus, they're going to find a way, even in the face of the most compelling evidence and witness. Well, if you flip your note page over, Jesus next calls upon a third witness, none other than who? The Father. God the Father is witness number three. Someone says, wow, you know, shouldn't the Father have been Jesus' very first witness? Here he is, number three. Well, you're not out of step if you're, if you're kind of thinking like that, but in truth, Jesus has been appealing to the Father throughout this whole encounter with these religious leaders. Back up in verse 17, once again, my Father is working, right? And I am working. He's appealing to his Father. In verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he what? Sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. How about verse 26? And the Father has life in himself, and he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He's appealing to the Father there. And again in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. So Jesus has been appealing to this witness all along. So by the time we get to verses 37 and 38, He's been calling on the Father nonstop. Only here Jesus formalizes this. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You know, if we stop and think about it, God has borne witness to his son, Jesus, throughout his entire life. I mean, this, we just kind of came out of the Christmas season a little bit ago. Remember the angels outside of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born? What were those angels doing? They were announcing, weren't they? They were announcing a message that came from who? From the Father. They were announcing that a Savior had been born and that that He could be found in a stable of all places. Not in a palace, but in a stable. But the point is, those angels were the mouthpiece for God who was bearing witness to the arrival of His Son in the most unlikely of places. The star is not the star that guided the Magi, a witness from the Father, pointing to the place where his son could be found? At Jesus' baptism, do you remember that the gospel writers tell us that a voice came out of heaven audibly at the moment that Jesus was baptized by John and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father is bearing witness to Jesus' identity in that moment. And here we get a view in that moment of the Trinity too, don't we? The Father speaks, the Son submits, the Holy Spirit descends. Man, what a moment. This is my Son. In Matthew 17, there's that that moment when Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain. If you remember this moment. 
and he lifts the veil off of his human flesh and he allows these three disciples to see his unveiled glory and and the father is there and the father says audibly this is my beloved son listen to him remember that what's god doing he's bearing witness when jesus takes his last breath on the cross and he dies for our sin we're told that the great veil in the temple in jerusalem was torn from top to bottom remember that that was god that was god's witness that was god's declaration that a way had been opened for sinners to come right into the presence of god through the blood of jesus and of course the entire old testament which these religious leaders had access to was God's personal witness to who Jesus really was and what he had come to do. And that, in fact, becomes Jesus' fourth witness that he calls to the stand, if you will, the Old Testament prophets, the ones who wrote the Old Testament scriptures as God inspired them to do that. We get that in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that what, church? Those Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here again, Jesus is offering life. It's what he does. Jesus says, leaders of Israel, you are the students of the Old Testament scriptures. No one knows the book better than you guys. You've devoted your whole life to the study of the Old Testament scriptures. Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Do you think it's possible to know the Bible really, really well and still not know the Savior of which it speaks? Can that happen? You bet it can happen. It happens all the time. These religious leaders are proof of that. Now, Bible scholars tell us that within the writings of the Old Testament prophets, there are nearly 350 specific prophetic details about Jesus and his mission, written hundreds of years in advance of Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem. These writings cover a 1,000-year period from about 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. And the details of some of these prophecies, as you know, Man, they are astounding. They are, they're amazing. For example, Jesus, we're told, would be conceived of a virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That prophecy came 750 years before the angel appears to Mary. Jesus would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In, in, in that town, that's where he would be born. 700 years before Mary and Joseph trekked there during her pregnancy, the prophet said that's where it'll happen. That's where he'll, he'll come in. Jesus would arrive exactly 483 years after the decree was issued to allow the Jewish people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Daniel wrote in 535 B.C. 
Jesus would present himself to Israel as her Messiah by humbly riding into Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, but on a donkey's colt, right? Zechariah 9.9. That was predicted 500 years before Jesus does this on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 says that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 500 years before Judas struck his bargain with the religious leaders. It was going to be 30 pieces of silver. Jesus would be crucified, Psalm 22, verses 11 to 16. He'd be crucified before crucifixion was really even an established way of execution. He would be crucified. And this prophecy details that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced and his clothes would be gambled for. That was 950 years before that happened. Jesus would be made an offering for our sin and he would rise from the dead. Isaiah chapter 53, 750 years before the first Easter morning. Now those are just eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the letter. Eight of nearly 350. So track with me now for just a moment, church family. If we were to employ the science of applied statistical probability to just these eight prophecies that I have mentioned that all came true in Jesus the chance of all eight being fulfilled by one person is one chance in 10 to the 21st power. That's a 10 with 21 zeros after it. Now, that's way too big of a number for us to figure out or to comprehend. So let me illustrate the probability of this happening. In order for this to, to happen, we first have to blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars 120 feet thick. Okay, can you picture that? All right. Then we mark just one of those silver dollars and we randomly bury it somewhere within that 120 foot depth. Somewhere in the world, we bury one silver dollar. And then we ask a person to find that one marked coin on their very first try blindfolded. In other words, in the world of statistical probability that Jesus would fulfill eight prophecies is as close to absolute certainty as anything could possibly be. But what if we added eight more? fulfilled prophecies by Jesus. If just 16 of the nearly 350 were fulfilled by him, the probability of that happening in one person is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So try to get your heads around this number. Take that same silver dollar and you set the silver dollar side by side in a line. If you did that, this number that we're talking about, 10 to the 45th power, this line of silver dollars would reach from the earth to the sun 92 million miles 30 times. 
That's just 16 fulfilled prophecies by Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled scores of these Old Testament prophecies, literally confirming his identity beyond all means of method or calculating. In other words, the certainty of Jesus being who he claimed to be and doing what he said he would do based on Old Testament prophetic messages is a number impossible to determine. And so in light of this staggering mountain of evidence confirming the witness of Jesus' true identity, how it must have pained Jesus to say what he does in verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Boy, check that out. Don't, don't, don't race past this verse, these verses. Jesus diagnoses the problem perfectly in this moment. These religious leaders, for them, it's not a lack of evidence. It's not that. People are not being asked here to take a blind leap of trust and just be believe in Jesus. They're not being asked to, to put their brains on the shelf and, and, and deny sound reason. At the very heart of it is the sinful heart which desires to be in control, to, to have the glory that should belong to God and have that glory for itself. An unwillingness to be humble and accept Jesus as the Lord of glory. To admit a need and to cry out to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. The proud human heart does not want to do that. Jesus diagnoses the problem. Here it is. It's a heart problem. It's pride, isn't it? You want the glory. You don't want me. Well, Jesus calls forward now one more witness. It's witness number five. And who is it? It's Moses. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is, this is really interesting. Jesus actually turns the tables on his accusers, his interrogators, and he essentially says, whether you know it or not, you, you're the ones who are on trial here. And the one who's accusing you is none other than Moses himself, whom you revere so much. Moses, God's man to turn a a slave culture into a viable Hebrew nation. He's the leader of the Exodus, the one whom God gave the law and the commandments on Mount Sinai. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Jesus says, Moses is accusing you, and he's accusing you because he wrote about me. We ask, well, when did Moses write about Jesus? When did he do that? Jesus' name doesn't appear anywhere in the first five books. And 
And Moses lived 1,450 years before Jesus comes on the scene. That's all true. But references in images of Jesus and his saving, redeeming work are everywhere in Moses' writings. Even before the third chapter of Genesis ends, the, the chapter that records the fall of mankind into sin, there God through Moses delivers a prophecy concerning Jesus. Do you remember this? Genesis 3.15. You need to know this verse. It says that from the seed of the woman, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent, the head of Satan. It's no mistake here, church family, that it, it does not say the seed of a man and a woman. It says the seed of the woman, anticipating the virgin birth of Jesus, his victory over Satan and sin, even before the third chapter is done. God is saying, I've got a solution to mankind's sin problem. It's the first reference in the Bible to the coming of Jesus, the the first mention of the saving gospel. And Moses penned this in this book of Genesis. In Exodus, the work of Jesus is powerfully captured in the imagery of the Passover, is it not? Where for the Hebrews, 400 years of bondage and slavery come to an end when an unblemished lamb is killed and its blood is applied to the door frames and the lintel of the Jewish homes and death passes over and those under the sign of the blood are saved, right? They're saved out of slavery and bondage and into freedom by the blood and even the, the doorposts and the lintels. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the cross, is it not? The New Testament will tell us that Jesus has become our Passover lamb, right? We're saved under the covering of his blood. In Leviticus, Moses details the role of the, and the office of the high priest as he carries the blood of the sacrifice of an innocent animal into the presence of holy God and makes atonement for the sin of the people. Remember this? That's pointing to who? That's Jesus being our high priest and, and, and carrying his own sacrifice into the presence of God and making a way. Jesus is our high priest. In the book of Numbers, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night guides a wayward people through the wilderness, right? Jesus came into our world of sin and into our wilderness of sin and he guides us to the truth as a light. And in Numbers 21, do you remember this? A, a bronze serpent is made that can deliver the people from a deadly snake bite. You remember that? You gotta look at that. You gotta look at that bronze serpent and you will live And Jesus, we we should know this because this was John 3, verse 14. Jesus says, just like the serpent was lifted up on a pole and those who looked at it were saved, Jesus says, I will be lifted up and those who look at me and believe will be what? Saved. Yeah. And in Deuteronomy, Chapter 18, Moses speaks prophetically about another one who will come and he will come from among the Jewish people and God says that his words will be in his mouth. His words will be in his mouth. And in verse 19, Moses records this warning. 
And whoever will not listen to my words that he will shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, fail to listen to God's voice through his son, and you will answer to God for that. Moses truly is Jesus' witness, right? And these religious leaders, unless they rethink their take on Jesus, are going to be condemned by Moses on a day of judgment. Jesus will not need to say a word. Five incredible witnesses, all who come together and affirm and verify that Jesus is who he claimed to be. John the Baptist, Jesus' own miracles, God the Father, the Old Testament prophets, and Moses. And then in this room, in this room right now, there are many, many more witnesses who are not ashamed to proclaim that Jesus is God, right? That's you, right? You are the witnesses. I am the witness today that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do. And our lives are proof of that. Our lives have been transformed by this Jesus. And so if this morning you're here and you're, you're struggling to settle the question of who Jesus is going to be in your life, man, examine the evidence. You ask all of your questions. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Hear his claims and cross-examine his witnesses. See if they're credible or not. And then you decide. No one can decide for you who Jesus will be to you. You must come to a verdict concerning Jesus. To make no decision is to make a decision. To put off making a decision is to make a decision. Jesus is waiting. He's he's waiting. The one thing you don't want to do is be like those dolphins. They were free. They were truly free. But they were so stuck in their old life and their old way of thinking that they could not see that a wide open ocean of Limitless possibilities lay before them. Don't be like those dolphins. Jesus is offering an unimaginable life to anyone who will have it. John will say, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen? And amen. Let's pray together, church. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this gift that you've given to us today. These are, these are verses we just confess to you. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we just confess to you. These are verses that we would maybe most of the time just kind of run right past. We wouldn't linger here. We wouldn't hang out long. We'd move on to the good stuff, whatever that might mean to us. But this is the good stuff. Oh, this has been a rich feast for us today. You, Lord Jesus, making these incredible claims and then backing them up with such powerful witness. If there be one in this room who has yet to settle the question of who you will be in their life, may today be the day. May now be the moment 
when they cry out to you and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. It's not about me. It's all about you, Jesus. I give you my life. I, I believe that you will transform my future and my present. I give my life to you. You died for me. You rose from the dead. I believe that. I need a Savior. Don't leave today without settling the question of who Jesus would be for you. For those of us who love you, Lord, may we be witnesses to a world that doesn't know you, to an idle world that does not yet know you. May we bear bold witness. All glory be to you, our Lord and our King, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.